You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. We are continuing with the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah 4, starting on page 775 in your pew Bible. And as always, we want you to know that if you do not have a pew Bible at home, please do take one home with you as a gift from us to you. Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The word of the Lord. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Gospel reading comes from Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 29. You can find it on page 870 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment 
with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad to hear. Glad you're here. Good to see you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, today is the fifth Sunday in the season of Lent. We are therefore concluding our five-part sermon series on the Old Testament book of Jonah. And it's a series that we've been calling The Mercy of God. You see, Jonah, Jonah is this totally amazing short story. You can read the whole thing in just, a, in just a few minutes. It's simple enough to be generally understood and appreciated and enjoyed by a child. And yet it's complex enough to amaze and astonish adults. People have been writing commentaries on the book of Jonah for like two, over 2,000 years, and we still haven't come to the bottom of it. So if you are the kind of person who's tempted to think of the story of Jonah as a children's story that can just be kind of dismissed because you already get it, let me just politely and gently say to you, you're 100% wrong, and you should repent and read the story of Jonah again. So is so much here. I am continu- Even just in the experience of preaching through the series, I have learned new things about the story of Jonah. And this is not even my first time preaching through it. I love this short story. It's one of the greatest works of literature ever written. And it's also true. So here's what we've done so far. We've talked about this thread of mercy that you can trace through the story of Jonah, that the story is actually a story of mercy. We've talked about running from mercy, pleading for mercy, experiencing mercy, and laboring for mercy. And today, we're going to talk about the scandal of mercy. The scandal of mercy. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Have you ever listened to two elementary school age kids have an argument? It is wonderful and hilarious. Uh, Here's how it usually goes. Movement one. First, there's there's a disagreement. Hey, you took my toy. Then there's denial. It's not your toy. It's my toy. Then there's escalation. Give it back. Then there's further escalation. You're being mean. Then there's counter-argument. I'm not mean. You're the one who's mean, right? And if left unchecked, tensions will rise. Long-established peace treaties will be broken. Declarations of war will be made. An arms race will be set into motion, and troops will mass at the border, right? And if a nearby parent, Switzerland, does not immediately intervene and pacify the situation, things will go nuclear, And what does it look like for things to go nuclear in an elementary school argument? You're not invited to my birthday party, right? That is DEFCON 1. Like, things have gotten out of hand here. You're not invited to my birthday party. Now, why? Why is being uninvited to the birthday party the worst possible thing that one small child can do to another? Well, it's because the guest list of a party represents, in the imagination of the child, the boundary line between who is in and who is out, right? And we all keep boundary lines. Little kids keep their boundary lines relationally, and adults keep boundary lines too, don't we? We're just a little more sophisticated about it. 
We are these finite creatures who cannot be equally intimate with everyone. You know that. I know it too. That's why we have to keep these boundary lines. We have to have a people, a tribe, a group. And then there has to be other people who are kind of out there, right? And some of us are these extroverts with big, broad categories, and we have big, broad boundaries. You've never really met a stranger. You've only met future best friends, right? Others of you are a little more on the introverted side. You have close, kind of tight boundaries. You're reserved. And unless someone has proved their faithfulness and trustworthiness over multiple decades, they cannot access your inner life, right? Some of us have nice, tight boundaries. Others of us have big, broad boundaries. But everybody keeps their relational boundaries. Did you know that the story of the Bible is, in a sense, the story of the keeping of relational boundaries? Think about it this way. The story of the Bible, uh, that the Bible tells is before creation, before anything existed, there was God, a holy trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in eternal differentiation and unity with each other, the original community. And then the creation of the world happens, and humanity the creatures that bear God's image are invited into, brought into this communion of the Holy Trinity. God expands his boundaries, so to speak, to include part of his creation. But through the rebellion of humanity, what theologians call the fall into sin, the boundary between God and humanity is set in place. A wall is erected to prevent human beings from corrupting and destroying all that God has created. But God, ever seeking to extend his mercy to his creation, sets in motion a means by which people will be able to cross the boundary and return to communion with him. And he begins this with his people in the nation of Israel. We see it start with Abraham, who is blessed in order to just enjoy his own private blessings forever and ever and never share them. No. Abraham, who is blessed in order to what? be a blessing, to become the conduit and the extension of God's blessing, to extend the boundaries of who is blessed by God to the whole world. That's Abraham's vocation. And it becomes the vocation of Israel. We see it in King Solomon, who becomes an extension of the wisdom of God, expanding the boundaries of who has access to God's wisdom to all the world. We see it in Esther, who offers her life not only for the people of Israel, but also for the well-being of a pagan empire, expanding the boundaries of who will be blessed by God and his people. We see it, of course, most clearly in Jesus, who is sent to open the gate through the boundary of sin to welcome the lost sheep back into the fold of God, right? And we're supposed to see this in the church, commissioned to hold the gate open and extend the mercy of God to lost neighbors and to lost cities. And the church are those people who anticipate the day when this work is going to be fulfilled and the boundaries will dissolve and humanity will once more dwell in full communion with God. That's the story of the Bible through the lens of boundaries. Now into that grand story, we have our text this morning, Jonah chapter four, which is, I would, I would hypothesize to you, chapter four is about boundaries. It's about who's in, about who's out. Now, in many ways, the story of Jonah as a whole is the story of ancient Israel. Israel ran away from its calling to be a blessing, to be a light to the nations. And the Hebrews became just like all the other nations around them, trusting in weapons of war and in taking on oppressive social structures that left few rich and many poor. And they suffered terrible consequences for this. However, as with Israel, God didn't reject Jonah. God doesn't reject his people. He doesn't reject Jonah either. God sends a storm. God sends pagan sailors. God sends a fish all to rescue Jonah. And the story of Jonah was meant in Old Testament times to be a challenge to the people of Israel, to remember their calling to be a light to the nations. 
Have you ever thought about this? The story of Jonah had a purpose in the life of the nation of Israel. This story had a purpose, and it was to challenge them to remember their calling, to remember that they could still fulfill their calling to be a conduit of God's mercy. And the story of Jonah, of course, in our place and in our time, challenges us as well. Now, what we're going to do with our remainder of our time is we're going to look at chapter four and we're going to see the scandal of mercy. And if you're the kind of person that takes notes, here are your two very simple categories. The scandal in this text is the scandal that mercy is needed and the scandal that it's given. Mercy is both needed and given. And when we see who it's needed by and given to, we see that there's actually something scandalous about that. It's very difficult for us. So let's look at it together. First, the scandal that mercy is needed. Now, in order to understand the emotions of the book of Jonah, the emotional tension of this story, you have to kind of get your mind around just how evil Nineveh actually was. I have found over the years, as I've talked with various people about kind of how they interact with and and respond to stories in the Bible like the story of Jonah, what I've found is that most people, when they encounter the story, story of Jonah, they automatically empathize with Nineveh. Nineveh is just like, there are these other people that are of a different race, different tribe, different ethnicity. We should be, you know, sort of like multicultural people who value people who are different from us. Of course, we would extend mercy to those people that are different from us, right? Like nobody wants to be a racial bigot like Jonah. And we're very down on Jonah. Jonah's obviously the villain of the story. And Nineveh is obviously people for whom we should have compassion. And that is not how the story would be read in its original context. And it's because you've never met a Ninevite. (laughs) I'm going to go on a limb here and say, if you met a Ninevite or if you ever ventured to the city of Nineveh, you would probably want to blow it up too. Okay. Here's some things you need to know about Nineveh. There is a book in the Old Testament called Nahum. Almost nobody has read it. Raise your hand if you've read Nahum. No, don't. Oh, come on. No, you haven't. Nobody's read Nahum. Okay. Maybe you have. You only read it because it was listed in a read through the Bible in the year plan. Okay. That's it. So, Did you know that the book of Nahum has a subtitle and the subtitle is An Oracle Concerning Nineveh? The entire book is a vision that the prophet Nahum has concerning the destruction of Nineveh. And it concludes in Nahum chapter three, verse 19, quote, everyone who hears the news about you, meaning Nineveh, claps their hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Now, Contemporary people have no problem seeing Jonah as the villain, villain, because again, as I said, we're all used to these ideas of racial equity and the dangers of feeling superior to other cultures. But when you think of Nineveh, you need to think of like the KKK or Nazis or Boko Haram. Like that's that's the kind of people that should come to your imagination. Uh, The Assyrian Empire had a pretty um, dramatic and cruel reputation. Uh, here's, here was the like, strategy for conquest for the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was a part. They are going to be so horrifically violent and cruel in the villages and towns and cities and nations that they conquer that all the surrounding towns and villages and cities and nations are just going to surrender so that they don't have to experience the cruelty of losing to the Assyrians in war. So if the Assyrian uh, army is marching on your little village, let's just pretend we're a village right now, and the Assyrian army is at the gates, they're demanding that we surrender or else. Here's the or else. 
or else they're going to come in and they're going to fight until we're defeated. And then all of the captives of war they take are going to be skinned alive. The Assyrians, this is true, this is historically accurate, the Assyrians had developed a mode of torture whereby they became proficiently um, uh, experts, proficient experts at removing all human skin without killing the victim so that you could experience the maximum amount of pain and suffering humanly possible before they kill you. And they do this in front of your friends and family. So when the Assyrians show up, it is bad news for everybody, okay? And you kind of want to surrender. Like, it's better to be slaves to the Assyrians than to, like, actually lose to them in war. So when you hear the word Nineveh, if you're in this kind of ancient context, it's a bad place. It is not a place where you kind of, that elicits feelings of compassion and empathy. It's the kind of place where you think if it just wasn't there, that would be better for the whole world. And Israel wasn't the only nation that felt this way. All other nations in the world at this time would have celebrated and thrown parties if Nineveh just got nuked, okay? So that, we just kind of need to get our imaginations there in order to emotionally empathize with the tension of this story. Now, here's the thing. The Assyrians actually did invade and carry off the northern tribes of Israel into exile, an exile from which the 10 northern tribes of Israel never returned. So when Jonah and his buddies in Israel are feeling threatened by the Assyrians, are they just like imagining things? No, the threat is real. Like Assyrian conquest is imminent. They're not making stuff up. And so Not only are the Ninevites in the Assyrian Empire horribly cruel and wicked, but they they present a real existential imminent threat to Israel and to their people. And you've got to imagine Jonah is thinking about women and children and all the people who are going to die horrible deaths if the Assyrian Empire continues to grow in power and spread. So our imagination is sufficiently traumatized by the Assyrians. All right. That means we're in the right emotional space to understand chapter four, okay? Now, mercy is not the same thing as niceness or gentleness. Think about, think about how we tend to use the word mercy. Let's just imagine for a minute um, that Lewis Lovett and I are in a wrestling match, okay? Just kind of get that in your minds. And imagine, appropriately, he being bigger and stronger than I am, that he is beating me, okay? This is a pleasant image for you. So, Lewis and I are wrestling. He is beating me. He pins me to the ground and I cry out for mercy. What am I, what am I saying? Am I saying like, let's just be buddies? No, I'm saying I lost. <laughs> I, actually, I actually failed. I actually need him to let up and relent because I, I can't beat him. I can't overcome him. That's how we use the word mercy. Or if you're uh, playing, let's say a soccer game or a basketball game and you think about the mercy rule. What is the mercy rule? The mercy rule is when one team is just obliterating the other team so badly that you kind of have to either call the game or they have to sub out players or something has to change. Like they have to relent. They have to let up on the gas because they're just beating the other team by too much. Or you think about, you know, if you're on a farm and one of your livestock gets injured or sick in a way that you kind of can't help them heal, you might think about a mercy killing, right? What is a mercy killing? This thing isn't going to heal it's, it's better not to let it suffer and just to kind of put it down, right? So this is how we use the word mercy. Mercy, when you use it rightly, implies failure, falling short, 
not being able to do something. If mercy is needed, it means in this context, judgment is deserved. If mercy is needed, then judgment is deserved. Nineveh deserved judgment. They really did. And if you don't feel that, you don't really get the tension of the story of Jonah. Now, both you and I know, I hope, well, I hope we know, that talking about the judgment of God is about the least popular thing that you can do today, right? Like, if you really want to kill a cocktail party, like, just start a conversation about God's judgment, right? You will never get, you will get uninvited to all the birthday parties if this is the kind of stuff that you want to talk about. Now, God is doing something very interesting with Jonah here in this chapter regarding mercy and judgment. Jonah thinks he wants judgment, right? That's why he's so angry and so upset. God has not judged Nineveh. Jonah wanted him to, and we would empathize with that. God should judge Nineveh. They're really bad. They should get blown up. And then God doesn't do it, and Jonah is angry. And so God takes Jonah on this fascinating little kind of like object lesson where God gives him a plant to grow up over him and to kind of provide some, some shade for him. And then God judges the plant, sends a worm and eats the plant, the plant falls down. And then Jonah experiences all of this like hot sun and scorching wind blowing on him. And, and what God is doing is God saying, look, Nineveh needs mercy. And you know what, Jonah? You need it too. You don't think you do. You think you're in a different category. You wanna draw some boundary lines between you and Nineveh. But Jonah, this is from, from God speaking, Jonah, you just don't understand. My boundary lines include both of y'all, both Nineveh and you. So God in his mercy is giving Jonah a taste of what judgment feels like. And, and listen, God, God may do the very same kind of thing with you. I'm not like promising that or predicting anything, but you just, in your own imagination, you need to have the category that God in his mercy and his kindness to you may at times allow you to experience just a taste of what it's like to not have his mercy so that our prideful and arrogant hearts can realize, oh, that's what it would feel like if God removed his mercy from other people. Because you and I are always tempted to think that there are some people that are more deserving than others, right? I mean, just think for a moment right now, who... who who do you really not want to be a part of this church, <laughs> right? Who, if they joined this church, you would like not want to be a member anymore. <laughs> Just think about that. That's kind of what we're talking about because I, there's a way of preaching Jonah that would help all of us agree and none of us change, right? And it goes like this. The point of Jonah is that we all need to expand our kind of, um, you know, racially bigoted stereotypes and understand that God wants everyone to be a part of his family. And, uh, and we need to include people that are, that are not like us, you know, ethnically or racially or culturally or generationally or economically. And we would like everybody in the room would be like, I agree and not change anything at all <laughs> about how we live. And so in order to get in touch with the emotion of the text, you have to realize how personally Jonah hates the Ninevites. And so the pivot for us is not, oh, who's someone who's just culturally different from you? The pivot is, who do you hate personally? Who's hurt you? Who's wounded you? Who's attacked you? From whom do you have trauma? From whom do you have baggage? <laughs> And what if they wanted to be a part of this? What if they wanted to be a member here? Would you want to let them in? What if this was the place where they were seeking God's mercy? Would you want them to have it? There we are. Okay. So 
the first scandal of the text is that mercy is needed. That mercy is needed. Now, other side of the coin, mercy is given. The second scandal in the text is that mercy is given. Jonah fails to see that mercy for me implies mercy for you, mercy for everyone. Jonah actually no more deserved salvation than did the Ninevites. The children of Israel no more deserved God's mercy than did the Gentiles, and yet they seem to think that they did. Now, right from the start, this is a problem in the early church as well, both for Jews and for Gentiles, both for those of Hebrew descent and those of perhaps Assyrian descent in the early church. Always the temptation to think of your people as more deserving of God's mercy and others as as perhaps less deserving. And then, of course, the scandal is that God gives mercy to both. So the scandal is to not think that you are better than others on the outside, that God still loves them too. Mercy is given to Nineveh in that God relents from destruction. And listen, there's a way in which God shows his mercy in this text, which just goes right over our heads because we think of cattle differently today than people in the ancient Near East in the Old Testament times. I heard somebody, uh, maybe multiple somebody's laugh when Lane read the very end of chapter four of the story of Jonah. It does end very funny, doesn't it, right? It's like beautiful, 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 weird. <laughs> it's, you know, God is saying, you know, I'm, I'm relenting of my destruction. There's 120,000 people in the city that don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And those are those moments where you're reading the Bible and you go, the Bible's so weird. (laughs) I don't understand it. You close the book and you put it away. So the Bible is weird, but not for that reason. This is actually not an example of the Bible being weird. Here's what's happening. What is cattle or giant herds of cattle to somebody in the ancient Near East at this time in history? Y'all, that's the economy. It's not pets. It's not pets. It's not just, oh, God loves cute, fuzzy little creatures too. Like, no, this is the economy for for the city of Nineveh. And so what God is doing is he's showing his mercy, not just to the individual human beings in Nineveh, he's showing mercy to the city of Nineveh as a whole, including the economy, including everything, all aspects of the city of Nineveh. Now, this would be scandalous to an ancient Hebrew. And I wonder, I wonder if it's scandalous to us as well, because when we think of the kind of people that we really don't like, where if they walked through those doors right now, we would want to get up and walk through those doors over there. When you think about those people, you might also begin to think about something larger than that. In the city of Richmond, you might think about some of the ways in which Richmond itself can be a profoundly unjust place. Now, Richmond's great in all kinds of ways. The restaurant, the restaurant scene is incredible. There are like, my list of restaurants I have not eaten at in, in Richmond is so much longer than the ones that I have, and I'll probably never get to all of them. Uh, the music scene is incredible. I love the way that old historic homes are being renovated. Like there's so much beautiful stuff happening in architecture and the arts and community and food and mute. Like there's so, Richmond's amazing. It's also pretty broken, isn't it? There's a lot of pain in this city. There's a lot of old pain in this city that is still here, lingering on and on and on, generation after generation, century after century. There is a need for mercy here, which is to say, Richmond deserves some judgment, does it not? You know it does. I know it does too. And so what, is it, what would the scandal of mercy be in Richmond? What if God showed his mercy not just to the individual human beings in our city, but the city itself, the economy of the city? the systems of the city. 
So God, as he shows his generous, extravagant mercy to Nineveh, then turns and looks at Jonah. And what's Jonah doing? He is hot. He is angry. He is mad. He is sitting like on a hill outside the gates of the city of Nineveh, just fuming, throwing kind of the adult version of a, you know, childlike temper tantrum. And it's easy to kind of laugh or it's easy to maybe scratch your head and go, what is his problem? But let's just think about anger for a minute, okay? Let's just think about our anger. Jonah is angry. I think a few of us might be angry too. Pay close attention to your anger. Jonah's anger reveals so much about what is happening inside of him, right? And our anger, much as we would like to deny it, actually reveals a lot about what's happening inside of us. Do you know that your anger is probably one of the greatest threats to your life? And what I mean is, it's the greatest threat to all of the good things that you have in life. Your anger is the greatest threat to your relationship with your parents. Your anger is the greatest threat to your relationship with your kids. Your anger is the greatest threat you have to the relationship you have with your siblings, your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers. Your anger is the greatest threat to your marriage. Your anger is your greatest threat to your relationship with God. Because in our anger, we believe we know what a rightly ordered world is. And when the world itself, when reality does not align to the way we would like it to be, to the reality we perceive as being just and right and good, that's when anger rises up. It happens in really small ways, in like little kids who don't get dessert, right? (laughs) Reality, and then the way they wanted the world to be, and they don't align. It happens also in adults in all kinds of ways when our relationships and our lives and our work and our homes and and just like the substance of our lives does not align with, with the way we think a just and rightly ordered world should be. And so our anger actually becomes one of the things that casts us out from God, that separates us from God. Our anger ends up being this enormous, seemingly insurmountable barrier between us and a relationship with God, where God has ordained that the world's gonna work this way and we don't want it to work that way, right? (laughs) That's what Jonah's experiencing. I suspect there are a number of us that are feeling that as well. Now, come with me from the story of Jonah to the gospel reading that Lewis read a few moments ago where that word Jonah gets dropped again. And Jesus is having this interaction with people where he says something very mysterious, where he says, to this generation, nothing will be given to them but the sign of Jonah. And then he says, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up and judge this generation because they repent and this generation isn't isn't going to. What on earth is Jesus doing? Is he just like name dropping? Is he just like showing how well read he is? (laughs) What is Jesus up to? What is the sign of Jonah? Well, what do we have here at the very end of the story of Jonah? Just use your imaginations. We have a city that has experienced God's mercy. The whole city, the whole thing, the walls, the systems, the economy, the people, the whole thing. It's experienced God's mercy. And then you have one guy outside of the city, outside the boundaries of the city, on a hill, experiencing a taste of God's judgment. Not the whole thing of God's judgment, not the full force of it, but just a taste of God's judgment. That's the sign of Jonah. When Jesus says to those people, the only thing you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, what he's actually saying is a word of mercy. They're not ready to receive it yet, but here's what he's saying. I'm going to be cast out of the city. 
I'm going to be sent up on the hill. And there I'm going to experience the full force of God's judgment so that you can experience the full force of God's mercy. The sign of Jonah is the cross of Jesus. The sign of Jonah is the cross of Jesus. Jonah experienced just this little taste of the judgment of God. And Jesus experienced the full brunt of the judgment of God because he did want us to experience God's mercy. And listen, this is actually, this is in full keeping with the whole life and ministry of Jesus. Think about, think about the life of Jesus. What is he doing? He keeps messing with people's boundaries, doesn't he? You're eating with who, Jesus? Sitters and tax collectors? You're letting who touch you, Jesus? This woman who's known for her promiscuity? You're calling who your friend, Jesus? Zacchaeus? He's practically a Ninevite. One of the most powerful ways that Jesus redrew the boundary lines for people was not only in his teaching and his conversations, but in who he sat at the table with, who he threw parties with. And actually, Jesus throws this wonderful, tells this wonderful story in one of his parables about this very thing, about the redrawing of boundary lines around parties, where Jesus is sitting at a table with some Pharisees, some descendants of Jonah, and they say what any of us would say if we ever got to have dinner with Jesus. One of the Pharisees raises a glass to a toast and says, blessed are those who break bread in the kingdom of God, which is kind of old-fashioned speak for, this is great. We're having dinner with Jesus. Everything is awesome right now. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He just tells a story. And he says, well, there was a master who threw a feast. And he invited all his friends and nobody showed up. And then he invited other people, but they didn't come either. And then he sent his servants out to get all the outcasts from all the fringes and bring them in. And they were the ones that actually came to the party. What is Jesus doing? Well, in his own subversive, come at it from this side angle kind of way, he is telling all the people around the dinner table, you think you know where the boundary lines are. Let me tell you, they're a lot bigger than that. A lot of the people that you think are on the outside are actually going to end up on the inside. Now, as we think about what it might mean, what it might mean for us to receive the sign of Jonah, here's, here's, what, here's what you have to get your mind and your heart and your body around, is that Jesus gives up his seat at the table in order to give you one. Jesus was the one who was cast out of the city so that you can be included in the city. Jesus is the one who is outside the boundary so you can be included in the boundary. And you need to understand that he does it for you. That Jesus loves you with such scandalously extravagant love that he would choose to be cast out so that you can be included. Now, if you are the kind of person who is included, if you're the kind of person who receives the sign of Jonah, which is to say receives the cross, then what might it mean for us communally and you individually to become the kind of people who actually bear the sign of Jonah, to bear the cross? What does that feel like? What does it mean? Well, it means the kind of people who are willing to give up our own seat in order for the very people that we find despicable and hateful to actually come and take that seat. That's what Jesus does for us. We make ourselves enemies with God and with our rebellion into sin. Jesus says, I would rather be cast out so you can have a seat at the table. If we become people of the cross, if we become Christians, let's use that word, that it means we become people who don't look at folks who walk through those doors and think, ah, kind of wish they weren't here. I don't really know if I can be in a church with, with people like that who have hurt me in those ways, who have made my life, who are going to be a bad influence on my kids. 
right? No, rather we become people who when you see an enemy walk through the door, you go, you get in my seat. I, I, I want so badly for you to come and to experience the mercy of God that I'd actually rather give up my own seat than have you not, not taste God's mercy. So what would it mean? Let me just end with a few questions. What would it mean if the membership of Redeemer was, dare I say, scandalous in the kind of people that came here seeking God's mercy? What if, what if this was the place where the kind of people in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work who were kind of like notorious sinners, meaning people who have, who've done things in, in big, bad public ways, what if those were the kind of people who actually could come and, and be here and find God's mercy? And what would it mean for us to, to be in a parish with them, right? When you realize that the boundary lines include people you don't like, those who have personally harmed you, those who are a threat to your way of life, those who would be a bad influence on your kids, and when you realize that the boundary lines include you too, then it, it kind of begs the question, well, what is a redeemer kind of person after all? How would you answer that question? What is a redeemer kind of person? We have to take this out of the abstract and into the concrete. This has to be personal and real. Y'all, how can we begin to redraw the boundary lines and can we invite other people in to experience God's mercy? You know, Easter's in two weeks. This is a wonderful time to begin to do a little bit of that redrawing of boundaries as we invite people in to experience God's mercy. Now, do we keep our boundaries the way Jesus kept them? That's maybe a question we can sit with this week. Do I keep my relational boundaries the way Jesus keeps his relational boundaries? Let's end with a poem. This is a poem by Thomas Carlyle. It's called Coming Around. Same author who, and poet who wrote our invitation this morning. And here's what he writes. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that today and this week and as we head towards Holy Week and Easter, you would help us, Jonas, to come around to your way of loving. Lord, would you help us to become conduits and extensions of your mercy, that the boundary lines of your people would be redrawn to include even those people we think least likely and least deserving to receive your mercy. And may we rejoice in this because we realize that we are those people. Help us, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.